we don't necessarily have proof that the individuals who um, uh, created these particular crimes are individuals who have mental illness, but definitely there's often um, some correlation, maybe undiagnosed. Um, obviously, one would have to say someone who is willing um, to be able to plan and execute something of, of this nature definitely has some kind of disturbance. The reality is the majority of disability is actually invisible. Um, only about 16% of the population of people who have disabilities have a physical um, disability, like a use a crutch or cane or anything of that nature. The majority of disability is things like learning disability, mental illness. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Powering Up our cross-generational podcast about leadership, power, and gender. I'm Ann Doyle. And I'm Monica Doyle. Our guest today is Robin Jones, director of the Great Lakes American with, Americans with Disabilities Act and accessible, uh, accessible IT Center in Chicago. Uh, she has extensive experience in understanding and addressing the many issues related to human disabilities, the majority of which are unseen. Um, issues related to mental illness, depression, suicide. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about this. We've talked about some mental issues on the show before. So welcome, Robin. Thank you. Glad to be here today. Well, we want to tell our listeners more about your background, Robin, but our conversation with you is so timely because we are recording this the day after two mass shootings within 24 hours in our country. The first in El Paso, Texas, which is a Hispanic-majority U.S. city on the border with Mexico. And then less than 13 hours later in Dayton, Ohio, which is uh, not that far away from here in Detroit, a total of 29 Americans killed and 53 injured, including a 2-year-old child, in less than 24 hours. Both of these shooters were young white men in their 20s armed with automatic weapons. So clearly we have a gun epidemic, uh, we have a hate epidemic, but Robin, related to your work, would you also agree that we have a mental illness epidemic in our country? Well, I think this is definitely something that brings up the topic of discussion around mental illness. We don't necessarily have proof that the individuals who um, created these particular crimes are individuals who have mental illness, but definitely there's often um, some correlation, maybe undiagnosed. Um, obviously, one would have to say someone who is willing um, to be able to plan and execute something of, of this nature definitely has some kind of disturbance um, in regards to how they think and things of that nature. But we don't you know, definitely know whether or not that these individuals um, have a history of mental illness, but it does often get um, associated um, with violence, which is also somewhat problematic. Um, one of the reasons I think that we um, have difficulty talking about this particular issue is that there's stigma associated um, mm -hmm. with identifying as a person who has mental illness, and sometimes that keeps people from seeking treatment or from um, identifying uh, that they do actually have that mental illness. And this is a, a huge problem that we do have in our country. And what about other people who witness people who uh, we think, wow, that, that person needs some help? Uh, what do you advise that we do? Yeah, um, post-traumatic stress 
is definitely um, closely attributed. That's something that is a terminology. PTSD um, is something that, you know, many people have associated with um, individuals coming back from war um, or from um, serving in the military and, and witnessing some things of that nature. But it's a very real experience that anyone who has been exposed to violence or to a traumatic event um, will have as potential issue for them, um, which they need to get supports um, and counseling in order to process through that. Um, many of us sometimes say, we, you know, we're strong, we can handle it, um, and, and we go forward when actually we need to talk about it, we need to talk through it, we need to recognize what caused it, um, what are those triggers for us um, in regards to that to help us be able to manage that and um, hopefully, um, I don't know if someone ever overcomes it totally, but someone learns how to manage it. But what, what should other people do? I mean, people who maybe witness someone that we think might have some problems. I mean, here you've got a 24-year-old young man, a 21-year-old young man. There seems to be a pattern with white young men being these mass shooters. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, there's so many things that come into this particular issue, but um, I think definitely we as a society um, need to be more open in our discussions and conversations about mental illness, be more willing to talk about it um, and remove some of the stigma that's associated with it and not have it always be um, viewed as negative. If you think about how mental illness has been portrayed in our media and things of that nature, you look back to historically some of even the movies and things like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and things of that nature, mental illness has always been portrayed as something, you know, negative, bad, dark, scary, um, etc. And so that really um, stigmatizes it. And then that creates a problem for individuals who may be going through it because they're afraid of how their peers um, or how their family or how their coworkers or their teachers or whoever are going to perceive them um, if they identify and admit, is it, you know, is it a weakness that I have? I mean, it's often perceived to be a weakness, but you're not as strong, you're not as reliable, and that's not necessarily the case. There's many, many people in history that have had and dealt with mental illness um, successfully, but that's because they've gotten the treatment and the supports that they need. It's those that don't get it that we, that we present the problem. So personally, I've run into two sort of scenarios like this. When I was in high school, there was a young man who committed, uh, they called it a thrill kill. Um, this is one of my fellow high school students. And um, so it was an interesting thing to watch the process of him being charged with this murder because his friends got to come up on the stand and say, how are we supposed to report it? Like, we didn't take him seriously when he said he wanted to kill somebody. You know, we thought he was talking about video games and stuff like that. This happened while you were in high school? Yes, while I was in high school. And so when it came to something like that, you know, nobody wanted to report it because they were like, oh, he's just grandstanding. He's just talking. He's just a high school student. And then on the other hand, um, I'm part of the convention community and there was a mass shooting that was prevented um, I believe in Arizona or Arkansas or something because people did report somebody's erratic behavior so like what sort of things would you recommend people watch out for as erratic behavior in these individuals I, I think we have to look at um, the way that people um, it, it obviously it plays out in many different ways for different people but look if there's been a change in someone's behavior if you know someone's um, uh, I think anyone who um, should be taken seriously, who even jokes, it's not a joking matter um, ab about doing something um, violent or anything of that nature. And I think the issue is that we need to create systems in, that are in place 
that um, are, are safe for people to do that kind of reporting so that, you know, whether it be anonymous or, or however it might be, so that someone feels that, you know, if, especially if they're a friend or something of nature, they're fearful that if they report their friend for something that that friend won't like them anymore or their peers will think of them as, you know, tattletales or something of that na- nature. We need to create a system that is um, available to be able to report those kinds of things so that people who have experience and background in this area are able to start to look at it. If you think now what they've already done is they've been able to identify in these last two um, shoot- shootings where they have um, put social media posts up mm-hmm. and yeah. such in advance of doing this. Well, if someone is, um, you know, it, it's been reported and, and um, you know, the uh, professionals are looking at these kind of various ways to identify, you know, how they, how's this person online, um, what's their, um, you know, their online presence and, and their dialogue and stuff that nature, they can identify trends or things that they should, I don't think you can prevent it 100% in any way, shape or form. Um, but at least if someone knows and thinks there's a problem, at least they can look at what kind of interventions one might be able to um, provide, even if it's just a closer monitoring of well, that person. Well, where, okay, so where would people report? Well, I think this goes back to looking at our, our mental health system in the community and what's um, uh, there or not there. Um, you know, the, the community mental health system has been somewhat dismantled um, over time due to money or due to, you know, insurance issues and things of that nature. So there's less community mental health services available now than there were even 20 years ago. Um, unfortunately, and that's a really uh, huge problem. Looking at um, where the settings are, like in the school setting, um, your friend um, or that person in school, you know, what are the schools doing in regards to creating safe environments for students to be able to report things, um, you know, anonymously and otherwise, such as counseling offices, um, uh, things of that nature. Um, post-secondary education institutions have um, peer support groups, have mental health counseling, you know, that's available. Um, Some employers do, not very many, only very large, large employers um, have uh, employee assistance programs and such, but oftentimes people will avoid some of these systems um, if they're associated with school or they're associated with work because they're afraid again of that stigma being attached to them. So it's looking at how can we create a system that um, is safe, that people feel safe and feel that they won't be judged or that they can actually get, um, you know, the help that they need if they reach out. But again, the person has to reach out or there has to be some connection that's made. You know, the surveillance is not necessarily going to be successful 100%. So um, in terms of the mentality of these individuals, how do you think the media is involved? I've seen a couple of uh, media outlets with certain movements of trying to not show the manifestos of these people who Mm -hmm. commit these crimes, not showing the faces, not showing the names, and focusing more on the victims and not giving any spotlight to these individuals who do this. Do you think that is helping prevent like, do you think one of the big motivations of these people is this bizarre concept of fame? Well, I think that there's been definitely speculation of that. I can't remember. There was an incident that happened a couple months ago that I remember. Um, it was a workplace-type um, shooting, and um, the uh, owner of the company or the and the police department said, we will not um, say this person's name in public. We will not advertise this person's name. We're not going to give them one additional minute of fame, you know, or anything uh, associated with this. 
Um, and that that person, you know, press never even got a hold of um, any information or, you know, about that. Um, and, you know, there is a speculation and, and a lot of discussion about the fact that some of these things that happen um, are because people um, are looking for, uh, you know, um, their one minute of fame or whatever it might be, the copycat kind of scenario. Mm hmm. Um, and so, and so I think that's definitely um, a trigger to it. I think obviously the person who does something like this, you know, should not be the one that is um, uh, focused on in, in regards to the press and things of that nature. I think it is those that are impacted, the communities, the individuals, the families, you know, et cetera, that are, um, and, and I don't know if anyone can say whether that would stop it, but I think that there is definitely speculation um, and probably, you know, been supported in a couple of cases where um, individuals have actually quoted previous, um, you know, people um, like from Columbine and things of that nature have been quoted in the past by some of these individuals um, that, you know, there definitely is uh, um, something to be said about not giving um, recognition to people who um, commit these kinds of crimes. But I think that other thing, though, that just as I to go back to the press and the media, is um, oftentimes, though, the first assumption made in the press and the media is that this person must have had a mental illness. Um, and, and why didn't anybody know that or why didn't you do anything about it? And that is hugely stigmatizing to people um, who do have mental illness because it makes um, the public start to Lumps think that anyone together. who has a diagnosis, wow. you know, right, mm. you know, is also violent. And, you know, that's not fair. So you're lumping together people with, like, legitimate everyday issues that they mm -hmm. can handle with mass murderers right right and it, that goes back to that stigmatization again mm -hmm. you know um that that the thought then is that you know if i'm, so if I'm an employer or i'm you know a, an educator and i've got a student who's identified as having a mental illness or an employee um what's going to be my first thought is oh is this person going to come in and shoot up the, the workplace or is this person going to become violent in the workplace well i don't want to hire them you know i don't want to um you know we should we should uh, kick them out mm-hmm you know, oh. and, so, and that's not fair either. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I never even thought about that relation. But uh, Robin, you have been in your current position for over 14 years, working with businesses, schools, and government agencies to help them meet their obligations under the American with Disabilities Act, which was passed 29 years ago. Uh, I think most people think the ADA is primarily about wheelchair ramps and handicap parking. Would you give us, give us a little bit of a sense of um, top issues that you work with? Sure. Yeah, and there is definitely that sense because I think uh, disability is something that most people think about um, as uh, the wheelchair or the crutch or the cane. That's the visual image that we have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of emphasis was uh, placed originally on, you know, removing barriers like putting ramps on buildings and elevators and things of that nature. And, of course, everyone is familiar with accessible parking spaces and, and things like that. Um, but the reality is the majority of disability is actually invisible. Um, only about 16% of the population of people who have disabilities have a physical um, disability, like a use a crutch or cane or anything of that nature. The majority of disability is things like learning disability, mental illness, uh, major heart uh, health conditions like heart disease, epilepsy, um, diabetes. Wow, um, I never thought such. about so, that. And you, you don't see you don't see that You're right. you know, kind of a thing, um, etc. So there's you know definitely a misnomer about you know, disability and a lack of understanding about what, you know, actually does constitute a disability for sure. So, 
Um, I would say the majority of the work, um, you know, we work across the board, whether it's employment, it's education, it's access to goods and services, you know, being able to travel or being able to get into a restaurant or, you know, things of that nature. Um, you know, the in the workplace, probably one of the most difficult things that employers handle or deal with is mental illness, um, issues of behavior um, and such in the workplace. Um, if it's in education, uh, typically the number one group in the education community that is being accommodated is individuals who are uh, have learning disabilities. As I listen to you, it makes me feel and think, gosh, each one of us probably has at least one disability. I just I realized how many I have. <laughs> going through the list yeah, like myself, too. like, whoa, yikes. I guess I count more than I thought I did on this list. Yeah. You know, but it also makes me wonder, Robin, um, what's the research and your experience about how much of this is the fact that we're learning more about human behavior and 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 uh, and our bodies, and how much is the overstimulation of the environments, and whether it's chemical or whether it's social media, but all this input. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion, you know, around this. That, you know, there's certain things that we definitely know that have created or increased in the incidence of disability and such. So, for example, um, you know, we definitely know that the younger generation is losing their hearing or is having a, a degree of hearing loss much earlier um, or younger in life than um, individuals in previous generations, largely because of the way that we receive information now directly through earphones and earbuds and things of that nature into our ears. Yeah, it's unavoidable. um, We're seeing um, a lot more uh, in the um, industrial age, per se, if you want to say. We saw a lot of um, hand and other kinds of injuries for people who were working in factories or doing assembly line work. But once um, robots and things took over some of that work, we didn't see as much of it. But we're seeing now a resurgence of it as we see more and more people using texting and um, gaming and using those small consoles and the different controllers. And Carpal tunnel <laughs> and all that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All uh-huh. that repetitive. But with much younger ages and uh, across different populations than we've had, you know, in the past. Of course, there's always a big debate about, you know, what causes things like autism and such. We don't really know. It's been linked a lot to chemicals in the in the environment, um, chemicals in our food. You know, um, of course, we could talk vaccinations, about vaccinations. No, vaccinations, and stuff, don't you know, even go there. You know, unproven or proven or whatever. The reality is that we're much more aware. There's much higher level of diagnosis that's occurring. Mm-hmm. People are becoming more empowered about their disabilities. There was a time when you didn't talk about your disabilities. You didn't talk about it because it wasn't seen it was seen as a weakness in, in society and such and you know you know you're pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just do it kind of a thing and stuff and as, as people's identities have changed and they've become um, more comfortable with identifying as a person with a disability then they've sought um, accommodations and things I mean you know, I think back even when I was in school and look at my age it was before the um, laws were in place for students with disabilities in the school system and the kids who, you know, would often um, skip school or uh, would be out smoking or things that nature were often the ones now who would have been probably diagnosed as having attention deficit disorder or something of that nature and Mm -hmm. received services, but there were no services. So they were self-medicating. They Mm -hmm. were self, um, you know, um, uh, addressing their limitations and things of that nature without the support. You've been doing this work a long time, bring a lot of expertise to these uh, these issues. Uh, whatever attracted you to this field? Well, I come from a family with a lot of medical background. I started out actually as an occupational therapist. Um, 
working in a rehabilitation setting um, in the city of Chicago, and uh, I got disenchanted with um, the, the environment that we created um, in the rehab setting, that, you know, the perfect, everything was, you know, uh, perfect. You know, the bathrooms were perfect. You know, we could teach you how to do it. But then people got out in the community, and they didn't find that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, it's, and so um, I uh, moved from the clinical setting out into the community setting, um, and found that I could make much better and um, uh, impactful um, outcomes by actually working in the community to try to change things and um, help people figure out how to work and live in their community instead of in this kind of artificial environment we created in a rehab setting. Um, that led me to my interest in policy and the fact that much of what we needed to do was to change policy. So I'm actually quite interested in a lot of that stuff. Like mostly what I'm interested in is the how practical is what we're putting out there right now. I have a friend who is in a wheelchair. Um, he has limited mobility of his hands. And, you know, I've just spent time walking around in public with him before. If he was here, he would make a walking joke at that. (laughs) 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 But I've spent time going around with him before. And, like, the fact that people are so completely unable to make small adaptations to help him just get from point A to point B is ridiculous to me. Unable, unwilling? What do you mean by that? I mean, I've experienced things like I've walked up to a police officer and I said, hey, we need to figure out how to get to the second floor. And I have my friend sitting right next to me, you know, and the police officer points us to the escalator. (laughs) It's like, hello. (laughs) And, And then in order to get to the elevator, it was like pulling teeth, you know? It was ridiculous. We had to, like, go around. We had to find somebody to make the elevator accessible. It was ridiculous, you know? And then I see other things, like walking down the street you'll see a handicap ramp that has like an obstruction right there so it's like what's the point of the ramp anyway (laughs) and you see other things like braille on a drive-up atm machine (laughs) you know (laughs) like it's almost like people and the sign says we don't accept walk-ups yeah (laughs) and and like you know i i can't help but wonder if a lot of people who don't need to use these things put them there just to go through the motions and don't don't actually consider the people who need them for assistance. So is there like some sort of a a public outreach to, you know, make these things sort of more known to people who maybe don't have to use things like handicap ramps? Well, it's definitely a challenge. You know, as you said, 29 years since the passage of the ADA, and, you know, we still continue to find, you find the barriers, your friend finds the barriers every day Mm -hmm. um, that are still there. There's definitely a difference between what I call compliance and getting it. Mm -hmm. Um, Compliance is that you follow the rules, you check them off, okay? So, yeah, you installed an elevator, but you didn't think about where the elevator was located in regards to the typical path of travel. That yeah, I've had. seen an elevator yeah. located down literally two steps of stairs. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. that's fantastic. You put an elevator here, but yeah. you wow. created a whole new problem. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but they could check off elevator checks, mm-hmm. you know. Um, or, wow. it, you know, they put the parking spaces in, accessible parking spaces, but then now when they're doing their landscape, wow. That parking space is a great place to be able to dump all of our mulch and stuff while mm. we're, you know, um, getting ready for stuff. So what? Well, you know, we'll, we'll pile everything in there, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. 
that or the or the they put the garbage can in there or something of that nature. This it continues to happen, and that's the difference between, again, that compliance. Um, I'm in compliance versus I get it, and I understand the reason why somebody needs that parking space or why somebody needs an elevator and why it should be on a path of travel that's shorter instead of longer. Yeah, you know, kind of thing. Like I, I go to hotels and the accessible room is at the it's the very last room, um, <laughs> you know, uh, in the hallway. Well, it's the farthest uh, wow. from the elevator. You know, it's everything, you know, but that's the way, you know, yeah. the architect and designer, you know, did it. So sometimes it, there's a disconnect as to why. And, you know, this is a, an ongoing education issue. We try to get into the architecture schools. We try to get into the business schools and such mm-hmm. to try to increase awareness for people. You know, I've always said that, you know, you just if you have a friend who has a disability, spend some time with them, mm-hmm. you know, experience their world. Um, you know, understand it. Bring your customers who have disabilities in and ask their feedback about how you're doing, um, you know, and, and what you're doing and stuff. You know, if you really listen to your customers and saw people with disabilities as your customer, um, then, you know, we, we could change. But it's a long, long process. Um, <laughs> There's so uh, much changing. to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one one other thing I want to bring up before we need to wrap this up is um, yeah. this whole topic of emotional support animals. Oh, yeah. And uh, because, you know, uh, I've been on airplanes where people came in with their dogs, and I'm a dog lover, but gosh, I didn't see why that person needed that dog. Or and why and that I was, dog was an emotional support animal. It, yeah, right. I thought the dog yeah. needed emotional support. But, <laughs> but, but you know, um, I, I looked this up, and, and uh, one of the things that I read was it says, in, 20, in 2011, the National Service Animal Registry that sells these official-looking vests and certifications for pet owners they had 2,400 service animals and emotional support animals in their registry, 2011. Yep. Today, they have nearly 200,000. Yep. So what is the difference between a highly trained service animal and an emotional support pet? And do you think people are abusing this? Well, let's start first. There's, a de- there's definitely a legal definition between the two. A service animal is an animal that is specifically trained to provide a service to a person with a disability as it relates to their disability. So that dog has to be, and it only is limited to the species of dog, um, and it has to be trained to provide a service. So it could be, let's say, a hearing dog that's trained to um, alert me to sounds because I'm deaf. Um, It could be a seizure dog that alerts me to um, when my blood pressure drops, I'm sorry, my blood sugar drops, or I'm, um, when I'm, going, I'm having a seizure, my blood chemistry changes. Dogs are very sensitive. That's why they use them for drug sniffing and things of that nature. They can train them to actually recognize certain smells. It will alert me to that even before I've had any physical symptoms. You have the dog that, you know, might pick things up off the floor for me, might pull my wheelchair, may open the door for me. That's a service. Um, those are trained dogs. They don't bark. They don't, um, you know, they don't react to other dogs. Uh, they are to be, you know, not not seen or heard. Basically, they're very, you know, well-behaved kind of dogs. Um, a emotional support animal is not recognized by the Americans with Disabilities Act as a legal um, animal. Um, they are only recognized under two laws. One is uh, Fair Housing Act, and the other one is the Air Carrier Access Act. Um, and they do not have to be trained um, at all. Um, they just provide comfort to someone. That's the definition. They provide comfort. 
Um, and so they are allowed in housing where you might have no pets allowed. They, w- they would be allowed in the housing situation or they are allowed on the airplane. They are also not, as I said, they're not restricted by species to just a dog like the service animal is. Um, so that's why you could have a, a, a parakeet, you could have a ferret or a rabbit or a dog. What's happened is that individuals have figured out these laws and, and, and there's other individuals who help them figure this out um, as an enterprise or a business. If you Google, you can go online and you can answer a few questions and you'll get a letter that's a quote-unquote official medical letter saying that, you know, you need this emotional support animal um, and that's all you need to give to the airlines or that's all you need to give to your housing provider in order to allow you to have your dog. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, if I want to circumvent the $200 that the airline's going to charge me for having my dog, or I want to circumvent the apartment that's not going to let me have a dog or is not going to let me have a pit bull, so I get a, 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 um, a letter saying I need to have it, and it happens to be a pit bull, they can't, they can't um, disallow it. Um, we are seeing those kind of abuses, which unfortunately then um, creates a problem for those who legitimately have and use a service animal or an emotional support animal because they all get lumped together again. Right. Um, and in the eye of the public perception, if they see one animal misbehaving or they see something happening on an airplane, yep. I saw uh, a stewardess get bit by a dog um, on an airplane. It was wow. obviously an untrained, you know, uh, dog that should not have been in the close, yep. close quarters yep. like that in any way, shape, or form. And uh, you know, that then gives a, a bad scenario for the person who legitimately has a dog um, or an animal that um, provides them those services and such. So this has become a huge problem. The federal government is looking at some additional regulations. Airlines have started to um, curtail some of their regulations in relationship to this issue. Um, But, you know, it's kind of one of those things, the cat's out of the bag, or in this case, cat, dog, or whatever is out of the bag. (laughs) Parakeet, Um, squirrel. Yeah, yeah. And it's really tough to... uh, to rein that back in again because the uh, it, you're balancing on that issue of you know privacy and disability and disclosure against you know people uh, taking uh, advantage. Yeah, yeah. And 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 just to you know reiterate, any law gets potentially taken advantage of. You know, people will look for the loopholes in any law and push it. And this unfortunately is one of those that you know people have figured out different ways to push those limits and and unfortunately it it then reflects poorly on those people who legitimately have disabilities and have those needs yeah well and if you're listening please don't abuse that system um robin your work is all about empowering people uh, which is what our podcast is all about (laughs) Uh, would you share something that you've learned and try and teach about trying to teach people helping individuals who have some kind of disability to tap into their power and not let it define them yeah, I mean, I think the number one issue is that, you know, we need to all educate ourselves about disability and understand disability and um, really uh, let people, um, you know, it, it's all about people first. It's always about recognize me as a person first, don't define me by my disability, um, and that um, recognize that my um, opportunities and my uh you know, skills and abilities are, are boundless and are only limited by what you see as limiting for me. So, you know, you see somebody who uses a wheelchair and you think, well, that person could never, you know, participate in, you know, swimming or, or hiking or anything of that nature. But you know what? With the right um, uh, equipment and the right opportunity, you know, anyone can do anything. <laughs> um, and so I think it's the issue for us is to not um, 
put any kind of stereotype or preconceived notion on people of what they can do just because they happen to have a disability and to really encourage people to um, uh, do uh, what they want to do and enable them um, through whatever power and means that you have as an individual to do that, whether it's as a business, making sure you're fully accessible, um, whether you're an educator, making sure that you, you know, provide the accommodations that somebody needs to do it. Um, if you're an employer giving somebody with a disability a chance, they'll make an assumption that they can't do it, uh, make an assumption that they can do it until they prove they can't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, those are, um, you know, what we as a society need to do is to really refocus and think about people with disabilities as people um, first that, you know, have the same um, wishes, goals, and um, desires as everybody else does. And to not, one of the biggest mistakes we make sometimes is when somebody with a disability does something we um make it a big deal we say oh isn't that wonderful aren't they inspiring and you know things of that nature <laughs> no they're just a person who you know has figured out how to do something they're and just uh, doing they their daily your, grind yeah right they don't they don't want your admiration and stuff for that nature they want you just to recognize them as a person um who's accomplished something so don't put them on a pedestal or anything of that nature that's not the way to go either um the issue is you know um make more opportunities so that they can do more yeah. Well, and I've heard that before, you know, from people with disabilities, don't assume I can't do something, assume I can do everything. Yep. Well, and Robin, how can our listeners get in touch with you and resources to understanding the rights um, that people have as individuals and their responsibilities as employers? Do you have a website? Yeah, we, we are. We're part of the what's known as the ADA National Network. So there's 10 of us across the country. I happen to be the one in the Great Lakes area. Um, but we all geographically cover different areas, and we, we share two things. We share a telephone number, and we share a website. It's 800-949-4232, and then the um, website is www.ada, and then T-A, all one word, dot org. Perfect. Well, what this conversation has made me realize is we all have our abilities, but we all have our disabilities, and we shouldn't forget that uh, when we're encountering someone with maybe a different disability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so thank you for joining us, Robin. Uh, Our guest has been Robin Jones, director of the Great Lakes ADA and Accessible IT Center in Chicago, uh, an instructor at the University of Illinois, and an outstanding speaker and voice for helping individuals with disabilities live empowered lives. I'm Ann Doyle. And I'm Monica Doyle. Let's all go. Power Power up. up. Thanks for joining us at Powering Up. We hope you'll subscribe and share us with your network. Monica and I would love to hear from you through the Powering Up Women Facebook page or at Ann Doyle LDR on Twitter. And remember, power is the currency for getting things done. Claim yours and put it to work.